Welcome, everyone, to a Holy Mess podcast with me, Father Paul, who is his holy mess. This is a podcast to encourage, entertain, and give hope to those of us who are striving to find holiness in a very messy world. It's also a podcast for those of us who identify as a holy mess, like me, obviously, his holy mess. Are we not at all in some way, because of our weakfulness and our sinfulness, a holy mess? Yet the good news is that God, who is supremely pristine and pure, entered the depths of our mess and the mess of this world and made it holy. And he doesn't just clean up the mess in our lives, but he redeems it, uses it, and turns our mess into a beautiful message of hope. So tune in, bring your mess with you, and join me for a clean but very messy podcast. One, two, three. Welcome back, Holy Messes, to another episode of A Holy Mess with His Holy Mess, Father Paul. Thanks for coming back here. Hope you've been enjoying the most recent episodes. Uh, God is always good. The Holy Spirit is always good because what? just when I think, ah, I don't really have an episode for this week, um, God provides. And I got a text message the other day because as you all know, in the past couple weeks, certainly in the past seven days or so, uh, there's been a lot of questions with uh, about certain things that we're hearing about in the Catholic Church. Uh, we heard about the Vatican, the uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, the CV CDF, released a document, uh, a dubia, of answering some questions about uh, if transgenders can be baptized, if transgender persons could be godparents, if they could be witnesses at weddings. And people are just seeing headlines and they're like, whoa, what do you mean? You know, and people are freaking out and people are saying, this is why I'm leaving the church without even actually understanding what is the document actually saying. And then, of course, there's the other thing where uh, Bishop Strickland, who was, the, who was the bishop of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, has been removed as his position. And then a lot of people are freaking out about that. And I'm very grateful that a friend of mine, Father Frank Fano, who knew I wanted some more clarity about both of these issues, because as you all know, uh, you listeners, I'm a bit impulsive uh, at, at times and uh, quick to believe things without looking into them. And so I was grateful to be turned on to Michael Lofton's podcast and his YouTube show, uh, Reason and Theology. Is that correct, Michael? Reason and Theology? That's accurate, Father. Thank you. Yes. All right. And honestly, I've, I've been so grateful that Michael's show has come into my life. I've listened and watched a couple, probably about three or four episodes in the past week, and I'm grateful for Michael Lofton to be on my show. So Michael Lofton, thanks for being a guest on A Holy Mess. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Father. So before we get into the, the questions themselves, um, can, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I do have a, uh, a little bit of a bio here, but I, I'd like to go a little bit uh, deeper into why you're doing what you're doing and, and particularly how do you know all the stuff that you know? I mean, I, I'm like, how does this guy know this stuff? This is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So Michael Lofton is a graduate, uh, graduate of Christendom College, 
Graduate School of Theology, where he had received his Master's of Arts in Theological Studies, cum laude, in 2018. He's currently working on a doctorate in theology with Pontifex University and is writing a dissertation on the magisterium of the Catholic Church. That's probably why he knows so much. Uh, Michael is the founder of Reason and Theology, where he has interviewed many of the leading figures in modern theology. He has also appeared on EWTN, Catholic Answers, Sirius XM Radio, and Radio Maria, and has con contributed to frequently to various newspapers and websites and now to add to his resume a guest on a holy mess <laughs> uh, <laughs> so michael um you have a big following uh especially on youtube and uh i think i know why because um well i don't want to speak for yourself but I, I I certainly will be, will be going back and listening to your podcast or watching your shows on YouTube. But how did you get into doing what you're doing? Like, uh, how how did this all come about for you? Yeah, you know, it was an interesting uh, way in which it transpired. Um, well, there's there's a lot of background to it, but I guess I'll just give you a, the the short version. Um, I I really felt the need to have theological discussions on what is going on in the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodoxy, and also apologetics as a whole. And I wanted to facilitate discussions. Um, and so when I began the channel, I did the, just that. I would have Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants on, and we would all have various discussions. And um, you know, as the channel developed, it uh, took on another form where we went beyond just merely discussions, but also to um, myself and others uh, providing apologetic material defending the Catholic faith. As uh, I began to realize there was really a, a need there, especially to defend the Catholic Church against criticisms that are being offered by other Catholics, so criticisms that are coming from within internally. And I felt it was necessary to address some of those things because I just noticed that there seemed to be a gap there where we we speak about, you know, apologetics and relations, uh, relation maybe to orthodox objections and Protestant objections and atheist objections, but there just wasn't a whole lot of material out there addressing objections that are coming you know, from the inside. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of how uh, the channel took its shape that it is currently in. And I enjoy doing apologetics. I enjoy doing uh, theology. I've been studying theology since 2006. As you mentioned, I'm also working on uh, a doctorate. And so I just felt this would be a good opportunity for me to use what I've studied for well over a decade um, and offer it to others who are perhaps needing some guidance. How long have you been doing your show now? Well, the show uh, has been from January uh, 17th of 2017. So, okay. yeah, <laughs> a yeah. little over four years. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and you, you have, a, I think, what, like 65,000 subscribers on that. So that's a that's an absolute blessing. And I mean, where did this this passion come from? I mean, were you mm -hmm. always into religion or was there some conversion at some point in your life? You know, because a lot of people, I think, especially some of my listeners, they they admit, you know, I don't have a, a lot of listeners, but, you know, I mean, maybe some family, friends, some other people, parishioners or whatever. And, um, you know, and they, they admit to me like, oh, I'm learning brand new things, you know, like I'm, I'm an amateur in the faith. Like even like when you said you like doing apologetics, I feel like I got to tell my listeners, hey, that doesn't mean that he's telling people he's sorry. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, not, yeah. Apologetics is a defense of of uh the faith but also people are surprised that like non-priests or nuns know so much about you know or are theologians and it's like 
no, you're not a priest. You're not a, a deacon. Uh, you're not a friar. I think you said you're, 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 you have a family, right? That's correct. Yes. All right. And, and you're, and you're a theologian and you're helping the church. So I just want to use that as a, an encouragement to all you listeners out there who think, well, what could I offer the church? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not a priest. It's like, no, like you, you could offer everything. In fact, you could have an amazing impact on, uh, on, on this world and on this church. So that's yeah. where, that's just where I'm coming from with that question. Oh yeah. And, and, and I'm glad you bring that up. I mean, in the second Vatican council, it addresses an entire document towards the laity and um, shows, you know, what all the laity can do in the church today. So I'd highly recommend people take a look at that because there, there's certainly a role for laity today. Uh, so I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. As far as my own experience, no, I, I was not always into theology. Uh, I went through a time where I lived a very secular and, and, and sinful life. Um, I had a very, very profound conversion experience uh, at the age of 22 after kind of hitting rock bottom. And I, I, I finally came to the point in my life where I said, okay, I'm willing to uh, consider God. I'm, I'm willing to uh, consider taking my life in a different direction. And uh, there was a person who handed me a Bible. Um, and I kind of was at my wits end and ready to give up on life. So I said, okay, we'll have nothing to lose. So I went ahead and read the Bible cover to cover in less than uh, 30 days. And it transformed my life in that process. And I kind of had that, you know, Saul to Paul conversion experience that you see there in the book of Acts, where a person was just radically changed, uh, just very, very quickly. And, um, Everybody knew. I mean, there was a massive, profound change that took place. And I've never been the same since that experience. It was a very transformative experience. Uh, it wasn't so much intellectual as it was a um, mystical experience, even. It, it was very transformational. And I, I said, okay, well, I know this experience is real. And I know that God is real. And I. I know that what I read here in the Bible is is the truth and is God's word. Uh, so I began to um, conform my life to what God was calling uh, me to do as a Christian um, in in the sacred scriptures. And, uh, you know, I was Protestant at the time, uh, and so I still had some more work that I needed to do. But over a period of time, I kind of ended up reading my way into the Catholic Church and realizing this is the church established by Christ. Amen, brother. Amen. That's around the same exact age that I also had my, my conversion. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, blessing. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Um, <clears throat> Michael, uh, I know we don't have a lot of time, so uh, and you, you're always welcome back on here. We, you know, we, um, but uh, you said yes. Um, I asked about some specific questions. Sure. Let's start with the I, what I would say is the more important first in terms of, you know, salvation, right? Baptism. Okay. Um, that's the thing that I found out about first. That's the first thing that happened chronologically before the Vatican released that document before there was news about Bishop Strickland being removed. So let's start with that. Uh, what I say to you or some questions that I might ask you are, are not necessarily uh, what I personally believe, but different things that uh, people have texted me or comments that I've read on social media. Um, so in the headlines, some headlines uh, in, in media, secular media, it, here's Vatican approves baptism of transgender persons. And somebody uh, sent me one of these articles and said, um, 
what is this? Uh, I just started getting really involved in my faith and this is really confusing me um, because I, I thought that the church doesn't approve of this stuff. So uh, let's just start off with that little thing there. People are like, what, what, what's going on? What do you mean? Like, what, what is the church saying? How is this possible? Well, a person is correct to say that the church doesn't approve of a person attempting to uh, change their their gender that God has assigned to them. Um, and in fact, you can see that in the magisterium of the Catholic Church. Pope Francis has actually taught that in his document of Morsetizia. So he has very clearly said, we cannot do this, and this deviates from God's plan. And it mentions how it is very gravely sinful, and it offers a challenge for anybody uh, who who thinks that that is permitted in God's providence or God's eyes, I should say. Um, so God certainly does not allow for it, and the magisterium also confirms that. So a person is correct to say that, yeah, the church doesn't approve of this, and God doesn't approve of it. Uh, but there's a little changing one sex. Changing what you're talking about, changing one sex, they don't approve of. Correct. Baptism. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yes, as far as attempting to change a person's gender. God does not approve of that, nor does the church, because the church cannot contradict God's will. Um, <clears throat> now, as far as the document, believe it or not, the document should be something that everybody should be on board with. The document says that a person who has gone through these procedures of attempting to uh, change their gender, the person can be baptized under the same conditions as everyone else. Well, what are those conditions? person has to repent of their sins, and they have to be willing to follow Jesus Christ. That's the same conditions that everyone else is obligated to maintain prior to reception of baptism. So you turn away from sin, and you intend to follow Jesus Christ and his commands. So, of course, a transgender person can be baptized if they're willing to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus and follow him. Absolutely. I mean, we should say amen to that. Don't we want to share the gospel with people who have who have fallen and gone into sin, but now want to turn away from sin and follow Jesus? I want them to be baptized. I want them to receive the gospel. So I stand with what the Vatican said, because it's literally just saying the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is available to people who want to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. Thank you. That I think that's a great point that people are not really understanding that any person, any person who's going to be baptized has to have the conditions are, um, are for everybody that the repentance, that desire to be in communion, full communion with the church. Obviously, when somebody's a baby, their parents are making that, that promise for them or, uh, and their sponsors. But any adult, regardless of, you know, as you said, you know, their sexuality, there's conditions for everyone. And it's a desire, that condition, to be in full communion and to repent and to believe in Christ. Now, what I ask you next, Michael, is what if the person... Um, I'm not so very familiar with gender dysphoria, um, but what if the person truly doesn't, like, because you were talking about repentance, right? So, but what if they actually really, they don't really know, or they, they don't actually believe it. I'm not talking about somebody that's like, well, you know what? I am a man trapped in a woman's body, and I don't care what the church has to say about it. This is who I am, but I want to be baptized. I'm talking more about, you know, the person that is maybe completely 
invincibly ignorant to this, or maybe, I, I don't know if this is too harsh to say, but some people have told me that, you know, um, if, if we were to call gender dysphoria a type of mental illness, that the church isn't going to not baptize somebody because of a mental illness. I don't know if that's too harsh to, to say, but somebody would say like, well, yeah, why are people bugging out about this? I mean, there's some type of disorder going on in the mind and, you know, the church is in the healing business. The church is in the, 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 the business of grace. So if somebody is mentally struggling with something, they're not going to not baptize someone because of that. Are, are they onto something when they say that? Well, um, unfortunately, it's not the case that this is merely just a mental struggle. Okay. Um, th this would be something that also does touch on um, matters outside of just uh, perhaps a mental condition. There, there is certainly a spiritual battle taking place here as well. Um, now, obviously, as far as personal culpability, if there is not full consent of the will or full knowledge, we're not attributing any kind of mortal sin to a person. Their acts might be gravely immoral, but as far as their personal culpability, um, you know, if there if there are mitigating factors there, the church would say, uh, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that a person cuts themselves off from God's grace if there's mitigating factors. But there there is still this objective standard that we have to call them to and say this is a, isn't okay, and we need to dispel that ignorance if there is ignorance. So, in other words, if a person presents them to a priest and wants to be baptized but is struggling with these things, it does need to be made clear to them um, that this is not God's will for their life, and they, if they want to receive God's grace in the sacraments, they do need to be willing to turn away from this path because it is dangerous to their soul. Mm. Yeah, amen. So, would it be correct though then that somebody who perhaps did have consent of their will and does have let's say full knowledge of that of what they did and what they're doing mm -hmm. would they not then um be under the guidelines of the like if they were like this is who i am and i'm not going to change would mm -hmm. that be a condition where then we we pastorally have to really kind of say well then maybe we have really need to put off the baptism until there's more catechesis, more conversion. Yeah, that that's accurate because again, to reference the document on transgenderism uh, in relation to baptism, it does require that they meet the same conditions as everyone else. So if there's really not um, a sincere intention to repent and turn away and follow the commands of Jesus, then one is not prepared to be baptized yet. If they do, for some reason, still go through it and that is allowed, even though it shouldn't be, what happens is that person is validly baptized. They do receive a sacramental character, an imprint on their soul to where they um, have joined a covenant with God, but they have put an impediment between themselves in a reception of grace. And so until they turn away from their sin and intend to follow Jesus, they're not going to avail themselves of the grace that has been given to them. But yes, a person uh, who doesn't have any real kind of intention of turning away from a gravely sinful act, they, they might not be ready for the sacrament of baptism yet. And this doesn't, this isn't just for people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. This is for anybody who doesn't want to turn away from a gravely immoral act. So this isn't picking on one particular group of people. This is the same condition for everybody. You, you have to be willing to turn away from gravely uh, disordered actions and to follow Jesus Christ.
Amen. And I, I think that's a huge, uh, important point to make that this isn't just for transgender. We're not singling out transgender. I mean, the specific questions of this dubia are regarding uh, persons of uh, transgender or transsexuals. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people, um, people who identify as heterosexual, people who identify as homosexual, that we have sins. I mean, just because somebody may be a heterosexual uh, adult male or woman, but they might have things in their life that they're not willing to let go of or that they're not willing to repent of and they're not willing to surrender. So it doesn't mean like just because they are, you know, uh, straight or heterosexual or, or whatever that, you know, they're totally okay just because of that. No, they themselves need to have repentance and conversion and a desire to be in full communion. So yeah. thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for saying that. I think the reason why the Vatican is focusing on this right now is because this is what I say more of a new, we, we, we kind of really didn't have questions like this before, maybe even 15, 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. this is a new thing that the, the church has to address now because these are new questions that are coming up. That, that's accurate. Now, I do want to also emphasize, because uh, the document does tend to go into this. Now, a person who is struggling with gender dysphoria, so perhaps they haven't completely overcome this struggle yet, but they're open to transforming their lives. Their, their will and heart is not fixed on going against God. They want to change, but they're just still struggling with this. Are they disposed to receive baptism? Well, yes. Because guess what? That that describes everybody who comes to the baptismal font. We're all struggling, you know, with, with, with sin to some degree. But the question is, but am I disposed to transforming my life? Or is my will fixated against God's commands and just says, no, I'm, I'm not changing? If your will is hardened and you say, nope, I'm not going to change this. Well, okay, you might not be ready for baptism yet. But if your will is softened and you say, okay, I, I want to follow God, but I need help. And I need his grace because I know I can't do this alone. I want to do this, but I know I'm struggling with it. And I know I'm going to continue to struggle with this, but I want God's grace to help me overcome this. That person's ready for baptism because the grace of baptism will help them to overcome that sin. Nobody can come to the baptismal fonts pure and perfect and already overcoming all sin. The question is, is there disp disposition ready to overcome sin or is their heart just fixated against God's commands? Amen. And I, I think this uh, is a, a good transition into an analogy that you used um, in, in one of your shows recently. Like I said, I've listened to a couple, but mm -hmm. you, you said something specifically you, that you hope priests were listening. Mm -hmm. uh, and it had to do with something about with this, but also in the sacrament of confession. Yes. Can yes. you speak to that for a moment, please? Absolutely. Well, as a person who struggled with what's called scrupulosity before, what I was referring to, and let me maybe define that term. Scrupulosity is um, it's whenever you, you struggle with self-criticism to the point that you think everything you do is somehow so offensive to God that it cuts you off from a relationship with him. I mean, you just think everything and you're, you're constantly in fear that somehow you've you've broken your relationship with God to the point that most people who would look at what you're concerned about would say, yeah, no, this this isn't 
this isn't a big deal. You're making this more of a deal than it really is. This isn't something that breaks your relationship with God. I think you're being a little overly critical here. Okay. That's more what scrupulosity is. And there's a lot of people who struggle with that and they find confession to be a torture chamber. Because they'll go into confession and they feel like I have so many things to confess and they'll go on and on and on and talk about how I failed here and here and here. And usually the priest will tell them something like, well, you know, I, I just don't think that that was a sin. I think you're being overly critical of yourself. But the person still feels like, oh, no, no, I'm, I, I just cut myself off from God. And we're not talking about clear cut areas where it's clear you committed adultery or something like that. We're not talking about those areas. We're talking about Literally, maybe you stepped over two uh, two sticks that were shaped in the form of a cross, and you accidentally stepped on it, and you think that somehow you've you've offended the the cross of Jesus because these two sticks that you accidentally stepped on were in the shape of a cross, and maybe I committed sacrilege by accidentally stepping on it. This is what you know a person who's dealing with scrupulosity okay, yeah. is constantly just tortured by yeah and so my what i was saying is in that transgender document released by the vatican there was something actually very soothing in the advice that it gives to people there and i actually think that uh priests should probably consider some of that advice because it would probably help them to better understand and pastorally help the scrupulous who come to them in the confessional and are struggling with God's grace and they're or, or struggling with um, uh, God's commands. And they think that they're somehow cutting themselves off from God's grace. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, now the, the, the document didn't only focus on uh, them being transgender people uh, being baptized or not. And I hope I'm not forgetting any questions about that specific thing, but, Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. I do have one question about it. Um, and th this also will go into the thing about the, if they could be godparents or not. Yeah. Um, there's also something about in the document about it. Uh, maybe you'll know the exact wording, but uh, for in case there's a, a scandal, Okay, mm -hmm. or, or something else, scandal. And yeah. somebody said, you know, I, I read a comment like, you know, well, it, it does. So therefore the answer is no. Like it it, it alone, it cause it would cause scandal to the faithful. Therefore, mm -hmm. the answer should always be no. And um I I didn't really know what to say to that because I think that person might have been thinking it's somebody that's unrepentant and somebody that's just going to continue in this way of life. Mm -hmm. so can you talk to that? What, what does the, sure. the Vatican mean, the CDF mean about uh, yeah. be careful of it not causing scandal to the faithful? Yeah, as, as far as being a godparent in relation to this question, sure. Oh, is so, that only with the godparent? It's not about them being baptized themselves? It wasn't in reference to being baptized. Got it. Um, okay. Thanks for yeah. clear. Yeah. Could, could you imagine if that were a condition? I don't know. <laughs> Some people would never be able to receive God's grace. I mean, imagine, imagine somebody who has just engaged in horrible, horrible sins in their life um, and committed a lot of murders or something. Imagine like Hitler coming and he completely repented of what he did and he wants to transform his life. And could he be baptized? Well, if we say, well, you can't baptize him if it's going to cause scandal. Well, he, somebody like that would never be able to receive God's grace because obviously people are going to be scandalized by somebody like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Great point. Mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I sure hope that that wouldn't be a condition. Um, but no, in reference to being a godparent, right? So if you have a person who has 
uh, altered their body to the point that they can no longer reverse it. Right. But they they've come to a point where they realize what they did is wrong. Perhaps they can't undo what they've done to their body, but their heart says, I, I know this was wrong and I wish I could do something to change it, but there's just physiologically nothing I can do to undo this. Uh, so they're repentant and, and they don't condone what they've done, but they're just unable to reverse what they've done. <clears throat> could such a person um, be a godparent? Yes. And would that cause scandal? It shouldn't because that person is repentant and they've done everything they can to rectify the situation. On the other hand, if a person uh, who has, you know, altered their body and they are not repentant and they don't want to change and they publicly let people know, I don't see anything wrong with this. Can they function as a godparent? No, because that would cause scandal because that person is saying I'm closed off to God's will, but somehow I'm going to be a godparent to this other person. Well, there, there's a conflict of interest here because as a godparent, you have to be able to help that person follow God's will. And if you yourself are closed to following God's will, you're in no position to be a godparent. So in that particular case, there would be a danger of scandal and that person could not function as a godparent. And let's call a spade a spade. I mean, we allow a lot of people to be godparents who, you know, they're not internally really like mm -hmm. completely and totally ready and willing to live everything according to the Catholic church. I mean, yeah. I, I, I see it all the time. Uh, so it's not just, you know, the scandal of, uh, you know, some, because somebody has it, um, a surgery that, that is, uh, uh, you know, they unremovable or whatever. There are a lot of people up there that you don't go to church at all. And yet they're godparents. So this should apply to all people and be a message for all people of, you know, uh, repentance and of a desire to truly uh, support the child in all areas of the faith. Uh, mm -hmm. Was there anything, uh, any other questions about the baptism itself? I mean, I'm sorry about the uh, being a godparent other than the scandal thing, or it was that pretty much it? It did. It did mention some other uh, conditions. I'd have to go back and refresh my memory on what yeah. they were. But that was the that was the most relevant one, I think, really to the discussions that people have online. The other ones weren't necessarily as relevant. Is there an English translation of the document from the Vatican that people can look up? Yeah, I actually have one on, on my website, reasonatheology.com. I, I did post an English version, and pretty soon, I don't think they've published it yet, but pretty soon the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith on the Vatican website will have an English translation. Right now it has like Italian, and you could, of course, use Yeah, Google how'd you get it before the Vatican? Yeah. Well, there, there's actually a program that will AI translate oh, it uh, for you that, that I used, um, and so I put that out as an unofficial translation. And, of course, yeah, a yeah, person yeah. could use Google Translate too if they want sure sure um i think that the final thing or uh, you could correct me on this there might have been some other things but at least what i'm interested in is uh if um somebody who is uh, transgendered uh would could be a witness at a mm -hmm. at a wedding at a marriage and i don't believe they said much about it right other than that there's nothing currently in canon law correct but what I, but what I wanted to ask you about that is that you you said something interesting that you are thinking that in the future we will see something else about that. 
Um, yeah, because it didn't it didn't offer any kind of conditions whether the person is repentant or not. In other words, there just canonically is nothing in there that would say that a person who is uh, transgender repentant or not that they can't function as a witness to this sacrament. And uh, you know, I imagine that's probably going to change in the future. I imagine there will be some kind of condition such as as long as it doesn't cause scandal. I imagine. And there's going to be some changes to canon law in the in the future, but currently, right now, there are no conditions. So, yes, a person in any particular situation in relation to that uh, struggle, that person can be a witness uh, to this sacrament. Yeah, and I, I don't think for anyone, I don't, I'm not sure if there's conditions at all for anyone being a witness at a wedding. You know, um, right. I could be wrong about that. Now, back to the baptism thing. There is such thing as not being a particular sponsor, not being a godfather or godmother, but being a witness. And how I've seen that practically is that it doesn't look like anything different. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, they're still kind of is a witness at a baptism. Are they literally just they're just there saying I've seen this, or are they also making those promises? No, no, they're not making the promises. So they're they're not they're just witness to the fact that you've made you know the person who's exchanging the vows has made the promise, and so they're they're just kind of there to confirm that yes, I've I've witnessed the fact that these two people have entered into this agreement. It's just like being a witness to a contract. You know, yep. I've seen these two people, they signed the contract that <laughs> that's all they're doing. And so okay. that's it. I mean, they're not actually participating in the forming of the contract. They're just saying, yep, I saw you put your signature on there. Yep. You put your signature on there. So neither one of you can deny that y'all both signed to this thing. That's yeah. yeah. I think that a lot of pastors, they, they allow the witness to also, act, you know, be involved in the ceremony in that uh, way. And I've always felt a little uncomfortable about that. But whatever, that is what it is. Um, so uh, before we move on to the news about Bishop Strickland, is there anything else about the do? I don't have anything else, but is there anything else that you would like to say to uh, anyone listening about the dubia, about the, uh, the this? Yeah. <laughs> about the one in relation to trans, transgender. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's other ones that are. Yeah, there, there are others. And, and the the transgender dubia also does address people who are attracted to each other of, of the same sex. But I would just point out there's really also nothing in there that is contrary to what the church has already said and that violates somehow faith and morals. There, there's nothing in there that says, hey, it's okay to act on same-sex attraction or something like that. So a, a homo, I, was it a homo-effective person, is that how they put it? Right. If they could also be a godparent, was that the question? Right. That was uh, one of them. And okay. and it's kind of like the same condition. So in other words, this is a person who is uh, living a life of purity. They're not acting on those things. And they're certainly not flaunting them saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with this. And, you know, there's perfectly fine for me to act on these things. And that's not a violation of Jesus's will. Okay. Amen. And if any of you are out there that haven't uh, listened to some past episodes and you're thinking, well, what, like, what's the big deal with homosexual uh, persons, homoaffective persons uh, involved in the church? I, I did a whole other episode about that with, uh, with somebody who was heavily involved in the LGBT community. So I just referenced you to that uh, episode. Um, and, uh, and also any episode that I've done with Christopher West, we also address that issue. Um, 
so Michael, okay, so now there was also a, another bombshell. First of all, thank you for that. I thought that was great, and I, I think it's going to be very fruitful uh, for the listeners. And if anybody is listening who identifies as transgendered or has gender dysphoria or is a parent uh, or a family member of somebody, just please also please know that you are loved. Please know that uh, your loved one, uh, that God does not make junk, that 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 nobody is a mistake. Um, and that we are in this together and that there's a lot of healing and that there's, there's a lot of grace and that Christ uh, does not abandon anyone, anyone. So just open up your heart and your mind to his truth. Mm. Um, come to uh, come come to worship, come to the sacrament of confession, come if you're not baptized uh, form, formation that the church is is here for you. We are not just like, hey, peace out, you have this thing. No, like Christ came for everybody, okay? But we're just talking about, you know, living it in truth according to God's plan for you, which is inherently better than our plan for ourselves. So know that you are loved, okay? Um, so Michael, thank you for that. And with the remaining time that we have, sure. uh, there's, a, the, you know, obviously uh, a lot of news about this, you know, conservative bishop that Pope Francis, um, you know, uh, fired or whatever, you know, or took him out. And there's a lot of people, especially a lot of conservative people or a lot of, co you know, traditional people that are going crazy over this and are saying a lot of nasty things about the Pope, uh, about this. And I love the fact that you are, uh, uh for lack of a better term, I would say, you know, Orthodox with a, not capital O, you know, uh, lowercase O meaning faithful to the church's magisterium, what the church teaches, um, you know, certainly not, you know, not, a, you know, liberal or far left or anything like that. And yet you are calling out people that are, you know, me on the right, you know, that are saying false things or making something out of this that maybe isn't there. And so I, that was really good for me to hear. Cause I'll be honest with you. I was very confused by it. I've never been somebody that like, I've never, I wouldn't say like I'm a Bishop Tyler, you know, Bishop Strickland, you know, fanatic or groupie or whatever that, you know, follows him and knows all this stuff. But I, I certainly was confused. I didn't really get it, especially because there's a lot of insanity going on in our church and uh, especially in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I didn't get it, but, but in, I'm not going to speak for you. What, what, sure. why are you doing what you're doing? What exactly yeah. is going on? Um, why should we not be really upset with Pope Francis and say, this is a reason why I don't want to go to church anymore. And this is crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's all a bunch of just demonic liberal agenda. Um, mm -hmm. What do you have to say to all that? Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, I address the problem of dissent on both sides, okay. you know, with both of the German bishops and with maybe some pseudo traditionalists who would, would claim to be traditional, but in fact, they're in dissent. I, I address the problem of dissent on both sides because it's wrong whenever it happens, regardless of what direction it's coming from. We have to adhere to what the teaching authority of the church teaches um, because it is the teaching of the authority of the church that speaks with the voice of Christ, mm. not only according to sacred scripture, but also consistently the teaching authority of the church itself has confirmed that. And so this is the faith. This is what it means to be Catholic and not perhaps Protestant or something else. Um, so we have to follow the magisterium in obedience, assent to its teachings. Um, now, of course, we see problems on the radical left 
with Germany and others, and it's perfectly fine to call that out. And I, I see people doing that, but I generally don't see people calling out dissent on the other end of the spectrum. And so there's a massive void that needs to be filled there. And, and frankly, I tend to see online at least more dissent coming from that end of the spectrum than I ever hear from radical progressives. It seems like the radical progressives are dying out. I don't hear from them nearly as much. I hear a whole lot more from people who are on the other end of the spectrum, what I would again call uh, pseudo-traditionalists, people who would claim to be traditional, but in fact are going against the traditions of the church and calling into question the teaching authority of the church, perhaps accusing Pope Francis of teaching heresy or something like that. Um, so what I notice is a lot of people were falling away and leaving the Catholic Church. Not so much because they're hearing about German bishops, but more because they've been listening to a lot of content that says, hey, Pope Francis is attacking the traditional faith and he hates traditional believers and he's teaching heresy and Pope Francis is of the Antichrist. And they're hearing a lot of that stuff and they say, well, if that's true, why am I Catholic? Why don't I go to the Eastern Orthodox? Why don't I go here or there? And I've seen a lot of people leave the church. They'll reach out to me and they'll message and they'll say, look, <clears throat> I made this decision, but I think I made the wrong decision here. I think I made a mistake and I want to retrace my steps. And I, Or I'll have a lot of people contact me and just say, hey, I'm ready to leave the church because I'm being told this about the Pope or this about the teaching authority of the church or that it's teaching heresy or the Vatican II teaches error. And I'm ready to leave the church. What do you have for me? You know, I'll have messages by those people. And so I saw a great need to help people who are struggling with those things. And I saw a massive void in responding to and pastoring those people in a way that helps them come to terms with the crisis in the church, not burying their head in the sand, recognizing where there are problems on both sides, but not overcorrecting and not falling into despair, and not falling into dissent. So I've decided to just do my best to help those people who are really struggling with that. And so that's what I tend to do on the channel. And that very much relates to the issue with uh, Bishop Strickland, and, and we can certainly talk about details there. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that there is a crisis in the church and on both sides. So before we go specifically into, and I want to, you know, respect your time. So just let me know when you when you have to go. But the, I keep hearing about this crisis, right? There's that this crisis, and that there's a crisis of uh, faith. There's a crisis of orthodoxy. There's a crisis. Of somebody, I think, even maybe I saw a quote from Cardinal Sarah said a crisis of the magisterium or something like that. So, what, in your opinion, would be? And maybe this is a fully loaded question, but like. What is the crisis in the church? Mm -hmm. How could we summarize that? What is, is there actually a problem? I, I mean, I think that a lot of people, you know, with, okay, yeah, there's a crisis. You know, there's a lot of people that are dissenting on the left that don't believe in what the church is teaching. But what, what is the, the fullness of this, this crisis? If you could even say yeah. anything to that. Dissent on both sides. So uh, not adhering to what the, teachings of the church are on both sides. Um, of course, the uh, crisis of sin and just simply uh, living immoral lives contrary to the faith on both sides, 
we we certainly have that scandal people not um living up to the standards of jesus christ in very important areas and you know we we've seen that in the secular news and scandals that have unfolded from that so that's certainly a factor in the crisis uh there's also a lack of discipline in disciplining uh wayward figures who are very prominent in the catholic church on both sides of the spectrum uh so perhaps a lack of disciplining some people who perhaps need it that's certainly evidence of a crisis but then a massive one is a lot of fake news specifically about pope francis now, I'm not saying that there's just been no mistakes that have been made, and I'm not saying that there couldn't be things that perhaps the Pope could do better, but what I'm saying is that there's a lot of fake news and misinformation and slander and malicious lies that are made about him, and and that's a massive part of the confusion and crisis because people have bought into that fake in, fake news fake information and they thought well hey this is true therefore i i need to leave the church or at the very least they remain in the church continue to disseminate that fake news and cause others to despair or they perhaps harbor hatred and resentment in their heart towards pope francis and they read him in the worst possible way so it causes a lot of problems whenever a person buys into this false narrative about him we've seen in the news just the other day massive headlines both in secular media and catholic media saying pope francis opens the door to blessing gay unions and that is a lie a malicious lie and yet it came not only just from those outside the church but also from people in the catholic church pope francis has said in his magisterium you cannot bless sin therefore you cannot bless this disordered union that is gay unions you cannot bless them they are not an object of blessing that has been reaffirmed by pope francis as late as july of this year that's also been reaffirmed by his right hand man who is over the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith cardinal fernandez in an interview on september 30th he's reaffirmed the position that you cannot bless the sinful union that information was available to people and yet nobody ran that in their headlines nobody showed that information they instead engaged in this slander and malicious lies about the pope saying that he opened the door to blessing gay unions and it's just simply not true that's just one example of many we can talk about pachamama we can talk about a more satitia we can talk about death penalty there's just so many instances where lies have been promoted against the successor of St. Peter, and unfortunately it's coming from people who claim to be Catholic. Is there anything, all right, so we're, we're addressing the lies and there's a lot of hype. Is there anything to it at all? Is there anything valid to the fact that, you know, perhaps the Pope has not been clear or has caused some confusion um, or is it really just the hype that we're believing? I mean, is it just the fact that, no, if you actually read like, you know, the letter, the you know, specific, every single word of the documents that throughout his entire pontificate, there hasn't been anything to really worry about, but it, it appears that way. Um, it, so my, my, my specific question, is there anything to the fact that, that, uh, Valid, uh, validifies the fact that people are worried, that people are concerned, that people do think there is a problem. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, there, there's some truth to some of the criticisms, and, and certainly the, the papacy could do better in some areas. So there's, there's a grain of truth to the claim that sometimes there's not as much clarity as there needs to be. I, I can totally get on board with that. And <clears throat> um, I will say, however, a lot of that criticism is overblown, though. We'll, we'll often hear that, well, the Pope is ambiguous or he's not clear. Sometimes that might be true. Uh, but in many of the cases, it's not that he wasn't clear. It's that Catholic and secular media twisted him and caused the confusion and caused the lack of clarity when the document itself and the Pope himself wasn't unclear. And you can use the transgender issue uh, as a perfect example. The document was very clear that a transgender person can only be baptized upon the same conditions as everyone else, which is obviously repentance and then a willingness to follow Jesus and his commands. But you won't hear that from people. You'll just hear it portrayed as, well, the Pope was unclear on what the conditions are, or the Pope didn't make any conditions at all, at all. And so he muddied the waters when previously it was clear before. That's just not true. So in other words, the confusion here was artificial in nature and was created by the critics more than any lack of clarity found in the actual document itself. So any alleged lack of clarity you might find in the document itself pales in comparison to the lack of clarity artificially created by people who are slandering the Pope. So, so again, why the, all the slander? Why mm -hmm. then? If it's there, like why, you know, and, I, and mm -hmm. I'll say one's particular name you know the you know taylor marshall you know and i'm i'm very grateful that you have at least you know really been kind of yeah. i don't want to say calling him out but showing like the full truth you know he shared yeah. one quote uh, but he you know yeah but he, he cut the quote off so you shared the whole thing mm -hmm. about this yeah. other bishop so not just him but then why the slander yeah part part of it sometimes is due to ignorance they're not actually looking at what the pope said they're just reading headlines and they're just taking for granted the slander so they've just they've been duped themselves in other instances they might be aware of the evidence but they interpret it in the worst possible way because they already start with the assumption that Pope Francis is evil or is working for the Antichrist and is at war with the church. If you start with that faulty assumption, and it's not true, it is a faulty assumption, but if you start with that faulty assumption, that's going to color the way you read him. So when you do go to the Pope, if you actually do, read what he says, but you're starting with the premise that this is an evil man who is trying to destroy the church, you're going to read him in the worst possible way. But that's unfair because I can do that to the Bible. I can do that to the words of Jesus. I can read him in the worst possible way. I'll give you an example. Jesus said, no one knows the hour of the coming of the Son of Man, not even the Son of Man. Now, he's saying right there, it seems on the surface he's saying that even Jesus himself doesn't know when his second coming is going to be. But wait, I thought Jesus is divine. So I thought he knows everything. Is Jesus now saying he's not divine and he doesn't know everything? He's not God? Well, that, that's part of the problem. If I read him in the worst possible way, as perhaps some people would do, perhaps some atheists or even some Muslims would re read him as saying, see, he's denying that he's God. They'll read him in the worst possible way. Well, if you do that, yeah, you would come away with the conclusion that Jesus denies he's God.
but it's it's like wait no there's a way to harmonize what he says here without denying that he does know everything and he is omniscient and he is divine and he does elsewhere claim to, to be divine so again it's the way in which we approach these things if you start out with i'm going to read him in the worst possible way you can come away saying all kinds of things but you could do the same thing with the bible and that wouldn't be fair so we have to approach you know pope francis in the way that we would approach anyone else with charity without engaging in rash judgment giving them the benefit of the doubt until it's just absolutely clear that you can't give them the benefit of the doubt you have to extend that to them and if we don't start with that faulty premise that the pope is trying to destroy the church that he's evil that he's a spawn of satan or whatever the claim is as long as you don't start with that you can see okay well i can see where pope francis is coming from and you can harmonize what he's saying with what he says elsewhere and what the church has said elsewhere I almost think this is more important than talking about one specific bishop. Um, because, so I, I will ask you this. I will ask you, um, you know, some a, a critique and a complaint has been that, well, you know, Pope Francis, you know, he has really, um, you know, helped out more bishops uh, or elevated bishops to cardinals that are maybe more on the left and those conservative bishops that maybe Benedict was a little more friendly to. He hasn't elevated them the cardinal. He hasn't picked them. Um, and some people are like, so, he, you know, the, he's putting these liberal bishops in charge. And that, that should show us something. Is there anything to that? Or is that all just that? Is that all just gossip? Well, I think that there's some legitimate criticism that he could do better in his appointments. I, I certainly can get on board with that. But I, I would have to say the same thing for Benedict and John Paul II. They had some pretty bad appointments. Some of the problematic figures in the church today were made bishops by John Paul II, and some of them were made cardinals by Benedict. Um, so they could have certainly done better. So can Pope Francis do better in his appointments? Yeah, but let's just make sure that we're being consistent. We say the same thing about Benedict, John Paul II, and others. Now, that being said, Pope Francis has also made some good appointments, um, and he has also uh, laicized some people that should have been laicized. Uh, so he's done some good things as well. And I'll tell you, Cardinal Fernandez, Pope Francis making him a cardinal, he made the right choice. Cardinal Fernandez, the head of the dicastery for the doctrine of faith, the doctrine chief now in the church, has come out recently and made it very clear you can't be a Catholic and be a Freemason. He's made it very clear the church cannot bless sin and the church cannot bless uh, sinful unions or gay unions. He's made so many things very, very clear time after time. And he's only been the head of that dicastery for a few months now. And he's just been coming out left and right, defending the faith, squashing um, fake news, and also um, putting to rest those who are attempting to deviate from the faith. And so he made a good appointment there, I would say. Um, <clears throat> so it's kind of a mixed bag. There's some truth to the criticism that he could do better. I agree. But I just want to be consistent and say, well, we need to say the same thing about Benedict and John Paul II and others. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a great point because, you know, somebody said to me, I don't know if you know that I'm from I'm from Newark. I was not a seminarian or a priest when McCarrick was here, um, but he was the archbishop, you know, when I was a kid or whatever uh, growing up. And so somebody said the other the other day to me, like, all right, well, you know, Bishop Strickland was removed, but why was McCarrick going to have to stay a really long time? You know what I mean? I didn't know what to say to that. You know, well, it was Pope Francis who removed him, right? 
It was Francis uh, removed McCarrick. Amen on that. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, just an unfortunate issue. And, you know, maybe perhaps Paul Francis could have done better in that situation. But I don't know. Um, should he been have been made a bishop? You know, he obviously wasn't made a bishop by Pope Francis. He wasn't, he wasn't made. In a, he wasn't made a cardinal by Pope Francis. So there, there's obviously some problems with previous pontificates here. And and again, it's not just McCarrick. It's it's some troubling other figures out well, there. I mean, let's talk about the German bishops who made them bishops. So. Well, and why haven't they been disciplined? And I think that that's a legitimate question. I think that they should. Now, Pope Francis has responded to the German bishops, told them, first of all, you can't do this. And he said that in his magisterium. He has told them, look, we don't need another uh, Protestant Reformation in Germany. <laughs> so stop doing what you're doing. He said those things. My criticism with Pope Francis at this point is it's not enough to just say those things whenever they're thumbing their nose at you and saying, we're not going to listen to you. And some of those bishops have taken that position. It's not enough to just use words at this point. We need to start employing discipline. Now, in fairness to Pope Francis, it is very hard to replace an entire country of bishops, an entire Episcopal conference. It's a lot harder to do that than one bishop strictly. I'll grant that. But it might be time to go ahead and replace that Episcopal conference, as bad as it might be. The, the other problem to that, though, if Pope Francis were to right now replace all those German bishops, most of those German bishops are not going to vacate their cathedrals and churches. They're going to keep those churches, keep those cathedrals, and they will continue to create their own church. And now you will have a separate parallel church, another Protestant Reformation, another formal schism. And Pope Francis will then have to appoint new bishops. They'll have to start out from scratch. They have no buildings. They'll have to pastor the flock that is left after the fallout of this and start from scratch. Now, you might argue, well, it needs to come to that. Pope, Pope Francis needs to do that. <laughs> I might agree with you. But the point is, I think he's trying to avoid that massive problem because once you have a formal schism, it's almost never healed in church history. We still don't have a healing with the Eastern Orthodox. We still don't have a healing with the Oriental Orthodox. We still don't have a healing with the Assyrian Church of the East. We still don't have a healing with the Old Catholics. All of these schisms that have happened in church history have not only not been healed, but they've grown into massive parallel churches and massive schisms. Mm. And this issue with Germany, if he were to immediately cut them off without trying to bring them in and turn them away from this, that will likely turn into another parallel church that will certainly turn into a massive schism later on. Now, you might argue, well, look, they're already materially creating a schism. You might need to just go ahead and cut them off at this point. Okay. I might be in agreement with you on that, but just recognize it's easier said than done than re replacing an entire Episcopal conference because you have to factor those things in if you're a pope as well. And so I think what he's trying to do is bring them in before we turn into a whole nother Protestant Reformation and create a whole nother parallel schism or parallel church here. Before we go that route, let's try to rein them in. Let's try to talk to them. Let's try to show them, look, you can't do that. You're going too far. That's very different than one bishop strickland okay so with the thank you very much for that I'm, I'm trying to respect your time here i'm fine i'm trying to respect your time oh, i'm fine yeah with with the the little bit of time that we have left um why is the removal of bishop strickland 
not this horrendous, horrible thing that a lot of people are making it out to be. You have revealed some mm -hmm. things that I didn't know, some things that you knew. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, take your time or take a short as, as long as you want to be, yeah. but um, a lot of people are upset, angry, scandalized, um, mm -hmm. and people are using this as an excuse again to want to leave. So I think you already said, spoke to, to a lot of beautiful things about dissents on both sides, and we mm -hmm. need to be fair to both sides. Um, mm -hmm. Why is this not the biggest horrendous thing in the world? What do people mm -hmm. not know that they need to know? Well, and you know, I guess before I go there, I'll just say in fairness to Bishop Strickland, I think he's a good man. I think he loves Jesus. I think he loves the church. I think he thinks that he's doing the right thing. I think he has good intentions. I've interviewed him multiple times. I always got the impression that this is a man who loves Jesus. So I don't have any reason to believe that he has negative or ulterior motives or is somehow bent on, you know, harming the church of Christ or wants to dissent from the magisterium or something like that. I think he thinks that he's doing the right thing. Unfortunately, I, I believe well-intentioned, he has been misled. Um, and look, we can say that about a lot of people in church history. Uh, frankly, you look at Martin Luther, I do think he was well-intentioned, but he was very clearly uh, wrong in some areas. So good intentions aren't always good enough. Sometimes, um, you know, we, we have to look beyond the intentions. But I will, will say that. I, I do think that he's well-intentioned. And I'll also say that you know, I don't know if I can say the same thing for some German bishops. <laughs> so even though I might criticize some of the behavior of Bishop Strickland, I do think that he loves Jesus more than some of the German bishops that I've seen. Uh, so I will I will say that in his in his uh, in all fairness to him. However, we still have to assess, OK, but should he remain in office? Should he be a bishop? Well, from what I've seen, Bishop Strickland, and this has just gone without any real commentary, from September of 2022, I brought out the fact that he publicly signed a document that says Pope Francis is teaching heresy in Desiderio Desideravi. And that's a massive transgression to publicly accuse the Pope of teaching heresy. Uh, this is a massive violation of his office as bishop. This is something that is condemned by the Eighth Ecumenical Council. He is not in a position to be able to sit in judgment of the papal magisterium in the way that he has done. If he has concerns, he needs to keep those private. He can raise them to the Pope directly, but he does not need to sign a document saying that Pope Francis is teaching contrary to the dogmas of Trent. You cannot do that. That is an accusation of heresy, and that is violating his Episcopal office. That's going too far. It's also a violation of, you know, uh, moral principles uh, to do so. And, and he was wrong on top of it. There, there was no heresy there. So he wasn't even teaching heresy. So it was a false accusation. Um, that has never been repudiated. His signature has never been repudiated. He and others have done that. And that is deeply problematic. Number two, the investigation into him revealed that there were massive concerns with his management of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. That still needs to be accounted for. Number three, there was also very problematic things that uh, Strickland would continue to share on social media that is absolutely slanderous to the Holy Father. He would share messages that say that Pope Francis is a diabolical, disoriented clown and that would reject the authority of Pope Francis. He even recently presents a letter written to him privately 
and he presented it publicly, nowhere condemned it, nowhere qualified it, nowhere disagreed with it. And the letter explicitly says that Pope Francis does not exercise his faithful office, that he's a usurper, that he's not the Pope, and that he is waging war against the Church of Christ, that Pope Francis teaches heresy. There's stuff in the letter that indicates that Pope Francis is the Antichrist, and all kinds of other horrible slanders. And Bishop Strickland presents that to the audience there that he presented it to in um, the end of October in Rome, in the Pope's territory of all places. He presents that to the, off, the audience as for their own benefit and edification. And he nowhere again says, well, hey, I disagree with this part of the letter. I don't think that's right. I just want to read this other part to you. He never does that. So he presented very horrible and slanderous and dissenting material against the Holy Father. And this is not just one instance. So even if he doesn't even agree with some of the content in there, he still disseminated that atrocious and demonic content without repudiating it. And there was no reason to share it anyway. Uh, so we can go after problem after problem after problem of this sort. And at some point you have to say, look, this is not the way a bishop should be behaving. And look, two wrongs don't make a right. Just because German bishops are doing something, yeah, perhaps those German bishops should be removed, but that doesn't justify what Bishop Strickland has done. Wow. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure that a lot of people know about that and know about I certainly didn't. I didn't know about that letter that he read aloud until I heard you literally going over it. And now some other things are are going out. So I'm grateful for the work that you're doing, for the ministry that you're doing. Um, and we need to pray for him. We need to pray for Bishop Strickland. We need to pray for the for the Pope. We need to pray for everyone involved. And I think that, you know, we do, and I'll speak for myself, get caught up in the hype, get caught up in the in the in the uh, the headlines without really doing a deep dive into it. I've been guilty of just believing things without really looking into them or just personally being like, all right, you know what? I've just had enough and myself falling a bit into despair and like, you know what? I, all I need is Jesus and I'm just going to pray and which is great. I mean, all we do need is Jesus, but um, you are helping, I think the church um, especially the church in America uh, helping myself to really okay, what is this all about? Let's mm -hmm. really look into these things. Let's look at both sides. Let's pray for both sides because I don't mm -hmm. think we do that. Like you said, I think we just complain. We harbor hatred. We harbor resentment. We do not pray for those people that we're thinking that we're hating or that we're resenting. And we're not really working for unity. Mm -hmm. We're just kind of working for what we believe in. So you are challenging me to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying give Pope Francis another chance, but I've been critical. You know, I haven't publicly like been critical of him. I've said that I don't think he's been as clear as he should be and things like that. You know, I certainly don't hate the man. I think he's holier than I am for sure. And I've never once ever had the thought that he's not the Pope. I just was been confused on some things. And it's understandable. I was that person. And in fact, I was the one publicly slandering Pope Francis and disseminating false news and fake news about him. I didn't know it was fake news and I didn't know it was slander. I honestly thought it was the truth and I thought I was doing the right thing. I was that person in 2015. So I've been there. I've been misled. I was deceived myself. I thought I was doing the right thing. I never intended to slander Pope Francis, never intended to disseminate fake news or false information. I thought it was the truth that I was sharing with people, but I was wrong.
it was fake news and it was slanderous. And so I've been there. I can sympathize with people who have struggled with that, but I've also come out on the other end of things and I've learned a lot and I've re- had to, I had to go and retrace my steps and realize, yeah, I was, I was off on this point and I've done everything that I can to maybe try to undo some of that. So I can relate and sympathize to people who are confused and have misjudged Pope Francis. I've been there. Yeah, well, no, thanks. And hopefully that people that hear this will, you know, relook at things, uh, try to find out the real data, not don't just believe all the hype. Of course, pray for both sides, work on unity. And I, I again, I, I absolutely love, I'm not sure where I read it, on maybe your website, that you're somebody that wanted uh, to find out what does the church actually teach instead yeah. of just believing what people are saying, right. what the church teaches about things. And I think that that could help um, uh, a lot and a, a lot of people. Um, so, uh, in terms of Bishop Strickland, just one last question. Some people sure. are saying, I've read some things that in order for a Bishop to be re- absolutely removed, there's like certain criteria that they're not exactly sure if the Pope actually followed. Is there anything to that? And I don't know exactly I'm, what that criteria hmm. is, maybe some terms of crime or, I mean, mm-hmm. you can speak about what he did do. And I mean, personally, my mm-hmm. own, and again, this is me personally not knowing the church's law or policy. Is just like mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. hearing that letter of what you know he read mm-hmm. out loud about the pope, you know, not being the the, the, the true uh, pope and you know mm-hmm. the antichrist. I'm like, man, eh, that seems pretty much grounds enough, you know, for removal. Sure. I'm just asking. According to, sure. is there anything to some people are saying he wasn't removed uh, the right way? Uh huh. Yeah. So the argument is that he wasn't removed according to the rules of canon law. Um, and, and so, in fact, we don't know what the process was because a lot of this has taken place behind the scenes. So we don't know if that is the case. But let's go ahead and steal man that argument. Let's assume that that's true. Okay. Let's assume Pope Francis didn't follow canon law. All right. Well, Pope Francis is the one who promulgates canon law. The Pope is over canon law. He is not subject to canon law. He's the one who writes canon law. He can change canon law tomorrow. He can do that. And the dogma of the church. So we're now talking about dogma in Catholicism. So this is per Vatican I, the dogma. Uh, It's heresy to deny this. The dogma is that the Pope has full, plenary, supreme, an immediate authority over every bishop's territory. In other words, the Pope doesn't have to explain himself, and he doesn't have to follow canon law. He can remove you as a bishop right now if he wants to. Now, that doesn't mean that he should, and it doesn't even mean that there might not be a moral offense there if he just arbitrarily just removes somebody. There might be a moral problem if he does that, but there's no canonical problem and he does have that authority per dogma to do so. And now, again, he'll answer to God on whether or not he's used that authority well, but he has that authority. So I'm a little troubled that I'm hearing people who claim to be traditional implicitly denying a dogma of the church saying the Pope doesn't have this authority or that he had to follow canon law and therefore he didn't follow canon law and so he couldn't actually remove them. That's a denial of the dogma of the Pope having full supreme authority. If you believe that, you're no longer Catholic. You're a heretic. And by the way, you know who believes what you're saying there? You know who agrees with you? The Eastern Orthodox. This is the very thing that they say. So in other words, you've already become Eastern Orthodox and you just don't realize it. So you're ripe for the picking for an Eastern Orthodox guy to come along and to connect the dots for you. And it will. it's only a matter of time before you leave the church and go to Eastern Orthodoxy at that point. 
And you have written a, a, bulk, a book recently about uh, these objections of Eastern Orthodoxy, correct? That's right. It's called can Answer in Orthodoxy. Can we plug that for you? What's the title yeah. of that? Answer in Orthodoxy. Uh, so if you go to shop.catholic.com, uh, you, you can find it there or it's on Amazon. And you can see there where I'm addressing the issues of um, papal supremacy. Does the Pope actually have that authority to interfere in the affairs of a bishop at will? Does he have that authority? Well, according to the dogmas of the church, yes. According to the ecumenical councils, yes. But Eastern Orthodox are going to deny that. And I show, well, here's why that's a problem. Because, in fact, the Eastern Orthodox who have accepted ecumenical councils in the first millennium, some of the councils that they hold to actually teach that the Pope has this authority. So they're being inconsistent with the own councils that they maintain. And so I try to connect those dots and show that to people. But you'd be shocked how some people who claim to be traditional Catholics are actually heretics at the core. They just haven't connected the dots and don't realize it. So I was deeply troubled when I heard some people who claim to be traditional say the Pope doesn't have this authority. I'm just thinking, well, even wait, cardinals, some cardinals are saying it, right? Some card and 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 we're accusing Pope Francis of heresy. Wow. <laughs> this is actual heresy. Wow. Here. <laughs> wow. What who is are the real heretics here at, at this point? Why is there a problem with the uh the credo by Bishop Schneider? Because that you know it's uh I mean if it's not okay to ask you this, then I, but no, I heard no, you talk fine. about it. Just uh because you know it's like a Sophia Press and you know has all these great people endorsing it mm -hmm. or whatever. And but I so I would have never even thought about it, and then I heard you say mm -hmm. something the other day. And I didn't, I didn't go ahead and look into it, so I figured I'd just ask you about yeah, it. Yeah, there's a lot of doctrinal errors in it. There's a lot of uh, instances where it actually attributes error to an ecumenical council. Um, so it, and also the current catechism of the Catholic church. And so wow. it, it is, in, in essence, it's affecting, effectively attempting to supplant um, the current catechism of the Catholic Church, which is problematic. So again, a lot of theological errors in it. Um, they actually redefine what schism is in, in the catechism, which is incredibly troubling. Um, there's just all sorts of problems with it. I've done multiple reviews of, of some of the problems already in Credo. But look, when you start accusing an ecumenical council of teaching errors you know, on a matter of faith and morals, um, there, there's a problem at this point. Wow. Great. Michael Lofton, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot. I hope that the listeners are, are learning a, a lot and going back to this. Um, what could we, what could we plug for you? I, you know, and I'll put whatever links in the show notes and on, you know, when I, when I promote this on social media, but anything in particular you'd like to let the listeners know about? Yeah. I mean, just, just definitely check out reason and theology. I mean, I, I have just, um, thousands of hours of content where I engage every conceivable objection that you can think of about the Catholic Church, whether it is coming from people internally criticizing the church or from Eastern Orthodox or from Protestants or atheists or Muslims. I engage all of that in detail. But if you're confused about the church right now and the crisis in the church, or you have um, some very, very critical views of Pope Francis, you'll certainly want to check out my uh, channel and especially the Recovering from Radical Traditionalism playlist. I engage all of the common uh, misconceptions about uh, the papacy right there. Wow. Excellent. Amazing. Why did you focus on the Eastern Orthodox by, to write a book mm -hmm. on? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I spent some time in Eastern Orthodoxy myself, oh, okay. and I, I, you know, I, I fell subject to some of their arguments because they were saying, look, you guys believe Pope Francis is a heretic. Why don't you come join us? We've been saying this about the Pope for a thousand years. And so, you know, I bought into some of that stuff, and and I then realized, well, no, the, the faith of the first millennium actually maintains the papacy um, as something that you can't part with. And so I kind of came out of that realizing that I bought into some really bad apologetic arguments for Eastern Orthodoxy. And I want to help people who are struggling with Catholicism and are tempted to leave and go elsewhere. I want to show them, mm, here's why you need to take a second look at this issue. Amen. All right, Michael Lofton. Uh, it's the Michael Lofton Show, right? The Reason and Theology. Yeah. Uh, please check him out. I'll put all the, the links uh, in the show notes. Please support him. This is what you do for a living, correct? That's it. This is your living. So God bless you. Pray you. for him. Let's uh, end with a uh, 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 an Our Father for the whole Thanks. church and the whole world right now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our, Father, Our Father, who art Lord in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. name. Thy, thy kingdom come. come thy will be done, be done on earth as it is, is in heaven. heaven. Give, Give us this day our daily bread, bread and forgive, forgive us our trespasses. trespasses. As, as we, we forgive, forgive those who trespass, trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, I'll end the recording, and then I'll say goodbye to you off the air. Thank you for joining me for another episode of a Holy Mess podcast. Please see the show notes in the description for this episode for more details and information about the topic and or the guest. You will find links and resources there to supplement this episode and help you along your messy but holy journey. Please also like, comment, subscribe, download, rate, review, and share all episodes. I want to thank Mike Mangione for providing me with the podcast theme song, Can You Love Me Falling, from his album Red-Winged Blackbird Man. Finally, please note that while me, I, whatever the grammar is, Father Paul Hulis, while I am a priest for the Archdiocese of Newark, a holy mess with his holy mess podcast is not affiliated with the Archdiocese of Newark in any way, including fundraising efforts. This podcast is purely the personal hobby, product, and evangelization effort of Father Paul Hulis. Please join us again next time for another holy mess of an episode. Peace! Yeah!